Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington is the largest city in the state and is located on the Delaware River, halfway between New York and Washington, D.C. It's the state's industrial, financial, and commercial center and its main port. Wilmington was established in 1638 and was the first Swedish settlement in what became the United States. The city went on to become one of the corporate capitals of the world, with more than half of all Fortune 500 companies operating there. Once the last stop on the Underground Railroad, it was also once the domain of the famous DuPont family. Modern-day Wilmington has nine historic districts, major performance venues, world-class dining, and more than 500 acres of parkland. But with just over 70,000 residents, it still feels like a close-knit community. In 1996, the community's bonds were tested when one of its own went missing. Anne-Marie Fahey was 30 years old and lived in Wilmington, Delaware, where she had grown up. She was the youngest of six and close with her five siblings, one sister and four brothers. Can you imagine having four older brothers? That sounds like torture. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Anne-Marie was probably a really tough chick. She had to have been. (laughs) For sure. Sadly, both of her parents had passed away. Her mom, Kathleen, died of lung cancer when Anne-Marie was just nine, and her dad died of leukemia when she was 20. Anne-Marie was the scheduling secretary for then-Delaware Governor Tom Carper. She had worked with him for about five years, working for him in Washington, D.C., where he was a congressman before he was elected as Delaware's governor in 1993. He is actually now one of Delaware's two United States senators. Anne-Marie had missed dinner at her brother Robert's house on Saturday, June 29, 1996. This worried all of her siblings after they realized that no one had spoken to her since Thursday afternoon. It was very unlike Anne-Marie to be out of touch for more than just an afternoon, let alone a couple of days. The siblings all went to Anne-Marie's apartment where she lived alone and convinced her landlord to open the door so they could check on her. By the way, Kath, this is so cool. Like, I mean, she misses a dinner and that night her siblings are at her apartment. I agree, but I also wonder how often they did that. (laughs) You know, like... What do you mean? She was never out of touch for even an afternoon. Was that her doing or theirs? Yeah, who knows? I mean, I don't know. All all I know is if I didn't show up for a family dinner, my siblings would be like, cool, more wine for me. (laughs) Exactly. When Anne-Marie's siblings walked into the apartment, Sister Kathleen immediately knew something was wrong. Anne-Marie was a very neat and orderly person, and her apartment was a mess. It didn't look like it had been ransacked, but it certainly didn't meet Anne-Marie's typical standards. They called the police at 12.15 a.m. on what was now Sunday morning. Kathleen also called Michael Scanlon, who was Anne-Marie's boyfriend, and he was supposed to have picked her up and brought her to the dinner party at Robert's house that night. Michael told Kathleen that he'd called Anne-Marie earlier on Saturday, but she'd never returned his call. Police met Anne-Marie's siblings at her apartment, and once inside, they did a more detailed search. They found a bag of unpacked perishable groceries on the kitchen counter, and in Anne-Marie's bedroom, they found her purse. Her wallet with her ID and credit cards were still in the purse, but even though her car was parked outside of the apartment, her keys were missing. And this is a time, too, when, remember, like now we would say, oh, her keys and her cell phone were missing. 
right? right? The things you don't go out of the house without. This was at the beginning of when cell phones were becoming really popular. So it probably was pretty common that she didn't have a cell phone. Yeah, exactly. Literally, Kathy, I remember right around this time, I tried one of my very first cases and I borrowed your sister's cell phone just in case I needed it during trial. <laughs> do, you, do you make a lot of phone calls well, during Well, trial? I mean, like you might need to call a witness or whatever. On this the phone? <laughs> this thing was so big. Her phone How big was, was it? <laughs> her phone was so big <laughs> that I could not fit it underneath my car seat. Like I had to keep it in my trunk. <laughs> it was this massive, I swear to God, it probably weighed two pounds. And so I was all excited because I'd never had a, a phone before that I could talk to people in my car. <laughs> And at the end of the month, for like these three days of trial, I owed her over $300. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? I swear. That's when minutes were like, hi, it's $7.50 a minute. (laughs) And I was calling like, mom, guess what? I'm on a car phone. (laughs) But I remember Christy showed me the bill. I almost died. In Anne-Marie's bedroom, her sister Kathleen found a packet of letters from a man named Thomas Capano. Even though Kathleen didn't know who Capano was, the police certainly did. Thomas Capano was a 47-year-old Wilmington attorney who was described as a political insider. And he really was. He was a former assistant public defender and prosecutor, had served as an aide to a former Wilmington mayor and Governor Carper's predecessor, and had been legal counsel for Governor Carper before entering private practice. Capano was also very close with many state representatives and state senators, as well as several retired Wilmington police chiefs. Officers went to Capano's house at approximately 3.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, about three hours after Anne-Marie's siblings had reported her missing. Capano confirmed a relationship, but insisted it was long over and they had parted as friends. He said that he'd had dinner with Anne-Marie Thursday night in Philadelphia. Afterward, he took Anne-Marie to his house to give her a gift and some groceries she said she had needed. And then he dropped her off at her apartment. Capano said he hadn't seen her since, but he also said he wasn't surprised that she was missing. He knew that she had taken Friday off and told police she probably decided to go away for the weekend with friends. He figured she'd probably show up at work again Monday morning. Police asked Capano if he would have a problem if they looked in his house, and he said he actually would have a problem. Capano, who was separated from his wife, said his four daughters were with him that weekend and they were upstairs asleep. Anne-Marie did not show up for work on Monday morning. Governor Carper's spokesperson, Sherry Woodruff, said that everything had seemed normal on Thursday, and Anne-Marie seemed to be in good spirits. Ms. Woodruff also shared that the governor was keeping close tabs on the situation and asked the Delaware State Troopers on his security detail to keep him updated. On Monday, police went back to Anne-Marie's apartment building and spoke to neighbors. Her downstairs neighbor told police that she remembered hearing a single set of footprints in Anne-Marie's apartment on Thursday night around 10 p.m. She said they seemed heavier than usual and thought at the time it may have been a man. By the way, did you read anything about why she thought, I mean, just like how long did she know Anne-Marie? How long had she lived there? Do you have an idea? She had lived below Anne-Marie, and this is the directly below neighbor. She had lived there for several years. And so over time, she heard every footstep. But she said she was so used to hearing her, she knew what she sounded like. But the person who was walking up there, it just, it had a different sound. Investigators looked at Anne-Marie's bank and credit card activity and found nothing after June 27th, which was Thursday. 
and the last time police had any record of her being seen in public. Police also went to the restaurant in Philadelphia where Anne-Marie and Thomas Capano had dinner, and they were doing it to check Capano's alibi. The waitress recognized the two of them from pictures and said that the pair seemed tense, and she remembered Anne-Marie not talking much and barely touching her food. The waitress said that when she brought the charge slip to Capano to sign, he passed it to Anne-Marie, and she signed his name on the slip. The waitress also said that she did not overhear any conversation because they stopped talking every time she approached the table. On July 4th, one week after Anne-Marie went missing, her family, friends, and supporters met in Brandywine Park hoping to find some clues in her disappearance. Governor Carper and his staff joined them as well. It was a large park near Anne-Marie's apartment building where she liked to go jogging. Her family was offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to her whereabouts. Police had searched the park several days before and used a helicopter with infrared equipment, but were unable to do canine patrols because of the vast terrain. I think why they were there is that friends and family had just felt helpless and needed to go somewhere where they knew that she was likely to be. Right. And just needed to try and find anything they could. Yeah. Like, even though the cops had been over it, they wanted to try themselves. Right. Maybe something was missed because it was aerial as opposed to being exactly. on the ground. Unfortunately, friends and family did not find any evidence that might have been helpful. Brian Fahey, one of Amory's brothers, said that he and his siblings had been calling every number in her phone directory hoping she was just with friends. But no one knew where she was. Brian said that the problem wasn't that the trail had run cold, but that there was no trail at all. Almost two weeks after Anne-Marie went missing, Governor Carper and Delaware police decided to accept an offer from then-President Bill Clinton to provide federal investigators to help with the search for Anne-Marie. Investigators met with the FBI's Special Investigations Unit to review the case. Because Thomas Capano was the last known contact with Anne-Marie, the FBI pulled credit card and phone records for both of them. Agents discovered that two days after Anne-Marie's disappearance, Capano made a $300 purchase at a store called Wallpaper Warehouse. Now, they thought this was odd because Capano was living in a rental. And when agents called the store, the phone was answered with airbase carpet. So my understanding is, is that it was kind of a dual store. It was a wallpaper and carpet store. Okay. And so even though it was called Wallpaper Warehouse, it really was both. And that's why the police just didn't know it until that point. Got it. Investigators also talked to Anne-Marie's closest friends. Her friends revealed that Anne-Marie had been having an affair with Capano for three years. It began when Anne-Marie was 27, and she met the then 44-year-old attorney who was legal counsel to the governor's office. He showered her with expensive gifts, but when they went out on dates, Capano only took her to out-of-the-way places in order to avoid being seen because he was married. Her friends also said she kept the relationship secret from her family because she was afraid that she would disappoint them. And you know what's so hard about this, and it's something that I see now, is that if you hide something from your family like that, when things go wrong, you don't feel like you can tell them. Right. It complicates things. It does. Yeah. After a few months together, Anne-Marie began telling her friends that although she'd been attracted to the charming older man, she realized that to him, love was the same thing as control, and she didn't feel like she could trust him. Which explains why he was going out with somebody so much younger than him, too. Right. 
In spring 1996, just a few months before Anne-Marie disappeared, she had told Capano that she wanted out and had begun dating Michael Scanlon. He was caring and stable, and she told friends it was the relationship she'd always hoped for. After a month or so, Anne-Marie also then began telling her friends that she became afraid of Capano because he was not reacting well to the breakup. With a fuller picture of their relationship and the purchase from Airbase Carpet, Capano was beginning to become a real suspect. Investigators now had a reasonable suspicion that Capano had likely used a carpet in his home to roll up Anne-Marie's body. But while they believed Capano played a role in her disappearance, they now needed probable cause that they would find evidence of a crime in Capano's house before a judge would be willing to approve a search warrant. Investigators then spoke with Capano's housekeeper. She told them that she had cleaned his house four days before Anne-Marie's disappearance, but that he had canceled her service the following week, saying the house did not need cleaning because his children had not stayed with him over the weekend. Busted. Seriously. <laughs> can, I, can I drop my boom goes the dynamite? No, you cannot. <laughs> don't, don't ever say something so lame again. <laughs> oh, there'll be plenty of labor things I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he told the cops originally, oh, you can't come in because my kids are sleeping. Right. This was in the early morning hours. They had right. said, do you mind? And he said, I do, I do mind. mind. <laughs> in fact, I do. Exactly. <laughs> I don't mind if I do. <laughs> <laughs> the housekeeper further said that when she went to clean the Capano house three weeks later, she noticed that the love seat and rug from the living room were gone and had been replaced. This was all police needed to get a search warrant for Capano's residence. Almost a month after Anne-Marie's disappearance, police served the warrant and carefully searched Capano's entire home. On the first floor, they lifted the new rug and found nothing on the hardwood floor below. Imagine how disappointed they were. Don't you think they were like planning to lift the rug and see this big like Like, stain? Exactly. Totally. A big blood stain for sure. Then one eagle eye investigator Ooh. found two brown spots on the cute? baseboard. <laughs> Just <laughs> <Probably>. kidding. <laughs> found two brown spots on the baseboard, as I was saying. Two brown spots on the baseboard behind where the love seat used to be. The FBI laboratory confirmed it was blood, but without a DNA sample from Anne Marie or her parents, remember they died when she was growing up, they were not able to confirm the blood was hers. And I mean, this was a long time ago, and the familial DNA stuff. Stuff <laughs> is that the technical term? <laughs> that's the that's the scientific term. Okay, good to know. Thank exactly. You. <laughs> it, it it wasn't even wasn't even a thing. Exactly. Another scientific term. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I think You're, our listeners feel very why, educated. Why don't right you now? explain to us the theory of relativity? Because <laughs> apparently you understand it. It's about gravity. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, uh, okay, so Anne-Marie's siblings gave investigators a lead because when they checked her calendar, they noticed that she'd given blood at a local blood bank about a month before she disappeared. But when police tried to get the sample, they were told that her plasma had already been separated from the blood cells and the blood cells were discarded and the plasma had been shipped overseas. So there was nothing to compare. Can you imagine how disappointed the police were at this point? I know. I know. You think you're going to get something good. but Although it's like I have no idea how long blood banks actually hold on to blood. A month does seem like. A long time. But just, you know, you have that tip and you're like, oh, we're so close. Exactly. And then they weren't. Right. (laughs) That was a fair summary. (laughs) 
Thomas Capano's family was very prominent in Wilmington, with his father founding a very successful construction company and becoming a highly regarded builder. <coughs> Mob. Thomas was the oldest. <laughs> totally. It's like, huh, not far from Jersey, Italian last name. Exactly. Construction business. Okay. Not that we're like painting everybody with the same brush. But we simply are. Exactly. <laughs> well, Kathy is. The other Kathy is not. <laughs> okay, where were we? <sighs> Prominent family. Thomas was the oldest mm-hmm. and his parents' favorite, which, you know, in my family it was the youngest, but that's okay. And he seemed to succeed at everything he did. He had three younger brothers and a younger sister. His brother Joseph oversaw the family's vast real estate holdings, and his brother Louis ran the family's construction business. Bob. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Youngest brother Jerry was never as successful as his older brothers and several times had needed Capano's legal expertise to save him, primarily with drug-related issues. Just like you. (laughs) Same. Yeah. Police believed that if Capano had killed Anne-Marie, someone close to him had probably helped him dispose of the body. But they'd also learned that Capano's family and friends were a tight-knit group and very unlikely to cooperate in the investigation. So at this point, investigators did not have a body, did not have a DNA sample, did not have a weapon, and did not have cooperation from anyone close to Capano. In August 1996, about eight weeks after Anne-Marie's disappearance, police were contacted by a man named Sean Taylor, who was a project manager at Louis Capano's construction company. Taylor told police that four days after Anne-Marie's disappearance, he received a call from Louis Capano, who told him to have the four dumpsters at the construction site he managed dumped out. Taylor thought this was strange because none of the dumpsters were even close to being full, and it was out of character because of the cost associated with emptying the dumpsters. Lewis denied to police that he'd ordered the dumpsters emptied. Investigators were able to trace the dumpsters to a landfill and sent an evidence recovery team to the site. They were looking for anything that might be evidence, including the love seat, a rug, or Anne-Marie's body. After four days of searching, the recovery team had not been able to find anything, and the search was called off. Although police believed Anne-Marie Fahey had been murdered by Thomas Capano, they did not have enough evidence to charge him with anything. Almost two weeks after the recovery team had failed to find any evidence at the landfill, investigators got a call from the blood bank. Investigators were told that the blood bank had been able to recover Anne-Marie's plasma. Wow, I can't believe they did that. I mean, nothing I read said that the police had said, hey, can you try and track this down for us? I know. So maybe, I mean, they probably explained what happened, but we thought her plasma was being shipped overseas. Exactly. Unfortunately, investigators believe they would have a very small chance of recovering Anne-Marie's DNA because the red and white blood cells had been separated out and discarded. At the time, it was more difficult to get DNA from plasma. The plasma was sent to the FBI laboratory, and it was the same lab that had performed tests on the blood found in Capano's house. And to everyone's surprise, a lab technician was able to find residual blood cells within the plasma, and they were able to retrieve a small amount of DNA. When they compared the two samples, from the blood bank and the house, it was a match. 
but police still needed more. Police knew Jerry Capano, he was Thomas Capano's youngest brother, had owned a boat that he kept at Stone Harbor Marina but had recently sold it locally. Police tracked the owner and scoured the boat for evidence that something may have happened on the boat, but didn't find any trace of evidence. The new owner did mention that Jerry had sold him the boat without anchors. The police knew, with this and all of his different run-ins with the law, that Jerry might be the weak link they were looking for. Four months after Anne Marie's disappearance, police began an undercover investigation into Jerry Capano and his activities. They believed that if they could get enough evidence of his illegal drug activities, they could pressure him to roll over on his brother. Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> Is that or, what it sounded like? Or maybe, like? I, don't, I don't know, anyway. <laughs> what kind of family that <laughs> Whatever. was. It's the mob. They were close. <laughs> This investigation continued for 11 months, in which time investigators followed his every move 24-7. That is a long time. How did he never figure that out? Like, wouldn't you think at some point in almost know. a year you'd do it? Maybe they were just good followers or but, whatever. I don't know. That's but the, that's a long time. But the poor investigators following. I know. Bored out of their freaking gourds. Yes. If you can be bored out of a gourd. <laughs> I'm sure you can. We'll find out. We'll let you know. Exactly. I'll Google it. Yeah. Jerry was married and had several small children, and police frequently followed him to bars and nightclubs and saw him regularly using illegal drugs. He also collected firearms, which is a federal crime for a known drug user, but you have to catch the drugs and the firearms together in the same place. Good to know. That's why you've always been safe. It is. Exactly. exactly. I keep my guns somewhere else. That's right. On October 9th of 1997, so 15 months after Anne Marie's disappearance, the FBI, assisted by ATF agents, raided Jerry's home. Inside, agents found a small arsenal of guns stored in the bedroom closet of Jerry's three-year-old son. Aw, Daddy! Father of the year! <laughs> exactly. Does it say whether they were locked up or not? It does not say that. Ah, okay. Although I got to tell you, I'm, I'm guessing they were not. I don't know. I, he doesn't I, seem like he's safety Marie. I know, but I mean, the kids three, he could get into it. Hopefully they were locked 96. up. 96. Well, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they were a pie on a shelf. <laughs> Come on, you know. <laughs> Once police found cocaine and marijuana in the house, they were then able to charge Jerry Capano with felony firearms violations and, this is for you, Kath, felony child endangerment. Good. Which, though, that tells me the guns weren't locked up. Police never thought Jerry had been involved in the murder but strongly suspected that he had been involved in disposing of Anne-Marie's body. But rather than charge him, investigators offered to reduce the charges if he'd testify against his brother Thomas, pretty much forcing Jerry to choose between his wife and kids and his brother. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. 
And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. One month later, Jerry and his lawyer met with the FBI agents and the assistant U.S. attorney, and he told the agents what he knew. Four months before Anne-Marie disappeared, Capano was being extorted by someone who was threatening his wife and kids. Jerry gave his brother $8,000 in cash to pay the extortionist, which his brother paid back a few days later. A month later, he gave his brother a gun for protection, which Capano returned a few months later in May. So this was the month before Anne-Marie disappeared. Yes, exactly. Capano also told Jerry that he might need to use Jerry's boat if he needed to dispose of anything that would tie him to the extortionist. Talking about having to dispose of anything that tied him to an extortionist, he was an attorney. He was a high-profile attorney, and he's hiding stuff like this instead of going to the police? Why would his brother not be like, dude, you're an attorney. What are you doing? Because they're freaking mafia. Oh, that's true. Okay, good point. <laughs> although the, although we haven't read anything on allegedly. that point. Allegedly. Exactly. We haven't read anything on that point. That's just us reading between the lines. Yes. Allegedly, allegedly, exactly. allegedly. The morning after Anne-Marie was last seen, Capano showed up at Jerry's house at 6 a.m. asking to use the boat he had docked at Stone Harbor. Both of them then went back to Capano's garage where Jerry told investigators he helped his brother load a heavy cooler into his brother's Suburban. Jerry never opened the cooler, and there was a rug that was rolled up next to the cooler. And Jerry told Capano not to take it with him because it would likely float and not sink. When they got to the boat with the cooler, Capano told Jerry to drive 60 miles offshore so the water would be deep enough for the body (gasps) to sink. Yes. When Capano said they'd gone far enough, they threw the cooler into the water, but it floated. Capano told Jerry to shoot holes in the cooler, so Jerry fired a shotgun that he kept on his boat to shoot sharks. Okay, I can explain this. Which what? I read that fishermen who were out to sea, that if they had caught sharks, they would shoot them to kill them and then put them on the boat. That seems very unsportsmanlike. It absolutely does. <laughs> like, sharks are beautiful. I, I'm, not, I'm not picturing real fishermen doing that i'm picturing guys in jeans and black leather jackets with like guns pointed over the side doing it and they weren't large sharks these were sharks that were like three or four feet long that was definitely not a national geographic episode (laughs) it was an after school special about not joining the mafia (laughs) (laughs) about all the bad points about the mob exactly so anyway jerry shoots holes in the cooler but the cooler still did not sink and by the way Come on. I know. A cooler. Well, and especially Jerry, if he owned a boat, should know. Coolers don't freaking sink. Exactly. They're designed not to. Yeah. Anyway, so Capano decides, he tells Jerry, I'm going to take the body out of the cooler. And Jerry's like, I don't want to see this. Here's some anchors to wrap around the body. (laughs) 
What? I don't want to be involved, but here's some anchors. This will help. Exactly. Here's some anchors to wrap around the body. I'm going to walk to the other side of the boat, and I'm going to look in whatever direction that I don't— That you're not. Exactly. I guess that's his version of plausible deniability. So what he did, though, when he was up there— is he kept talking to his brother. Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? And his brother said, yes, I'm done. So Jerry started to turn around and he said, that's when he saw a calf and a foot sinking into the inky black ocean. I guess I guess then he was probably like, oh, dang, yeah. no plausible deniability because I saw the ankle. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, on the way back to the marina, Jerry said Capano disassembled the cooler and scattered the pieces into the ocean. After they got back, Capano took Jerry to his home to get rid of the rest of the evidence, the love seat and the rug. Jerry said his brother tried to cut up the love seat, but when it didn't work, they took it to the nearby construction site operated by their brother, Lewis. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, was, is this the one Lewis denied having dumpsters emptied at? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, the next day, Capano bought a new rug. Two days after Jerry spoke with the FBI and the assistant U.S. attorney, Brother Lewis showed up with his lawyer where he recanted his statement about never ordering one of his project managers to empty the dumpsters earlier than scheduled. After speaking to both Jerry and Lewis, the FBI immediately began 24-hour surveillance on Capano because they believed it was very likely that he would try to kill his brothers to keep them from testifying against him. Two days after Lewis met with the FBI, The FBI agents who were surveilling Capano watched as he and his third brother, Joseph, this is the one who oversaw the family's real estate holdings, loaded suitcases into Capano's SUV. The agents reported that they were heading toward the International Airport in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. What was Capano doing? I I don't know what he was doing, Kathy. He He was was leaving. No, he wasn't. (laughs) Dipping. (laughs) Dipping, dipping, dipping. (laughs) The special agent in charge ordered Capano's arrest. Shortly after Capano's arrest, the police received a call from someone who said he'd been reading a newspaper article about Capano and his arrest, and the article said a cooler was missing. The caller said he found a cooler off the Indian River Inlet, which was about 100 miles from where it was thrown into the Atlantic Ocean, just before the 4th of July weekend in 1996. Police asked this person to describe the cooler... And he said it was missing its lid and had bullet holes in it. Police held back those details from the press so they knew that this was the cooler Capano had used. Investigators were able to match the barcode on the cooler with the cooler Capano had purchased with his credit card in April of 1996, two months before Anne-Marie disappeared. The cooler was important because the prosecutors believed it meant the defense team would not be able to say that Jerry had made the whole story up. And can't you see this with his drug past that they would have said that? Totally, totally. That was actually a big part of the trial. The word confabulation, which I would say is a $10 word. Yes, no kidding. Yes, was used in relation to Jerry's testimony. They said that drug abusers had a tendency for confabulation. Did they define it for everybody in the courtroom? (laughs) Not only did it corroborate Jerry's story exactly, but by finding the purchase on Capano's credit card, the prosecutors could demonstrate premeditation. Investigators also visited gun stores in the Stone Harbor area to see if there were any records of a gun being sold to Capano or one of his family members or friends. 
They did not find a record of Capano purchasing a gun, but they did find that a woman named Debbie McIntyre had purchased a 22 caliber Beretta six weeks before Anne-Marie disappeared. This name was familiar to the investigators. The original search of Capano's phone records had revealed many calls to Debbie, who lived in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. It turned out that Debbie was Capano's mistress of 17 years. When brought in to speak to police, McIntyre initially denied that she had had a romantic relationship with Capano. When investigators asked if Capano owned a gun, she said no. When they asked if she owned one, investigators noticed an immediate change to her demeanor as she became increasingly nervous and flushed. Exactly. And basically, she admitted that Capano basically said, hey, go get me a gun. And she's like, "Okay." And so the, the prosecutors were like, hey, heads up, lady. That's a felony. Supplying somebody with a gun to go commit a crime. Shoot, even supplying somebody who maybe couldn't qualify for a gun is a, is a crime. Well, he was an attorney, so he should have been able to. But yeah, well, you just never, you never yeah, know. You I just, mean, clearly you he know. was shady. Exactly. So finally she admits to the to the feds like, hey, look, he took me to the gun store. He asked me to purchase it. I registered in my name, blah, 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 blah. She returned to the car and gave him the gun and some ammunition. And then... She never, never saw, saw it the again. Gun again. Exactly. Yeah. Trial began on October 26, 1998, almost two and a half years after Anne Marie went missing, with a jury of six men and six women. Eight alternates were also chosen because the trial was expected to last two months. Or because they were expected to be bumped off by the mob. <laughs> But the newspapers didn't say that. <laughs> well, I hope it was the first one, but they actually lost the first juror before trial even started because she worked for a company and her company had a policy that they would pay two weeks for jury duty. And she had been talking to them, trying to see if they would do it for longer. The judge and the prosecutors actually reached out and asked if they would extend the policy. And they said no. Wow. So before trial even started, they had their first alternate used. If you actually ever watch a voir dire when these potential jurors give excuses about, oh, I have a this and I have a that and I can't afford a this and I can't afford a that, it is incredible. The judges will be like, I'll make a phone call for you. Like a lawyer might have another appearance or another trial. Don't worry about it. I'll get it continued for you. They actually want people left with the distinct impression that it is not easy to get out of jury duty. Wow. And I actually wondered when I they, saw that that it said yes, the judge had called. That is not unusual. Surprisingly, Capano testified in his own defense and admitted that he'd asked Jerry to help him dispose of the body, and he'd asked Lewis to make sure the construction site's dumpsters were emptied ahead of schedule. But according to Capano, he and Anne-Marie had resolved their differences, and on Thursday night, June 27, 1996, he and Anne-Marie were in his house sitting on the love seat when Debbie McIntyre entered Capano's house with a gun and threatened to kill herself. Capano said that he grabbed McIntyre's arm to prevent her from killing herself, but it caused her to accidentally shoot Anne-Marie behind her right ear, killing her instantly. Capano testified that he and Debbie then tried to perform CPR on Anne-Marie, but they realized they couldn't save her. He said he did not call the police because he didn't want to get himself or Debbie in trouble. However, on rebuttal, prosecutors questioned Debbie McIntyre herself and she denied these claims and said she was not at Capano's house that night. Okay, what a fool. Yes. I mean, maybe because she bought him a gun and she was a mistress for 17 years. Right. You that, don't know that, that she's she... going to be the person who's going to take the fall for your freaking murder? Well, it wasn't no. even taking the fall for the murder, but rather backing him up on it being an accident. And so they both get to walk away. 
but she's not gonna she's not gonna admit to like I came to your house intending to kill like no I I get that but you also know after 17 years what kind of hold did he have on her what kind of financial backing was he giving her so I think it took a lot of guts for her to do that but it also oh yeah for sure but it also ties into the story like we were talking about how we were we were reading newspaper articles Uh about how his lawyers who were very famous lawyers representing this guy said that he was not paying attention to anything they told him to do and not to do. He knew better. Yeah, I am. Yes, he knew better. And every time they suggested something or said, this is what we need to do, his response was, no, 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 this is what I'm doing. Exactly. So I am sure they're like, hey, uh, buddy, not a good idea to take the stand. And he's like, nope, I'm doing it. I can't believe he did. Honestly, when I read that, I was really surprised. Yeah. The prosecutor, Assistant U.S. Attorney Connolly, reminded Capano that when Capano was a Delaware Assistant Attorney General, that he had prosecuted a case in which the killer had put his victim in a cooler and dumped it in a creek. Capano was quoted after he successfully prosecuted the killer that the killer would have gotten away with it if he dumped the cooler in the Atlantic Ocean instead of a river. I wonder how this guy... Now, this is a prosecutor who had never tried a case before. I mean, excuse me, never tried a murder case before. And he was 33. The 33-year-old prosecutor, Connolly, he had clank and balls. He did. He totally did. (laughs) And not only that, but get this. So on January 17th of 1999, Mm -hmm. the jury found Thomas Capano guilty of first degree murder. And two months later, the judge sentenced him to the gas chamber. But this is what the interesting part was. It was the first time in Delaware's history that a defendant was found guilty of a capital crime without a body, without witnesses to the killing and without a murder weapon. He was clanking up and down those halls. That is so studly. No kidding. Like being 33, your first case is a murder case, and it's somebody with this level of notoriety. Absolutely. Yeah. It also said that this was his first and last murder case because after this was done, he went and joined private practice. Oh, yeah. They totally, I bet he was snatched up. Ka-ching, Exactly. It was a death penalty case, and it was an automatic appeal. The defense filed their appellate brief with the Court of Appeal trying to overturn the conviction. Now, in the trial court, what they did, the judge, his name was Judge Lee, the guy who was the trial judge, they asked him to recuse himself. They said, hey, look, you are talking about running for governor, and we think that you were politically inspired, and, you know, you've made mention of this conviction. It's not appropriate of you to hear any further motions in the case. So in the Court of Appeal, they have an appellate brief, In the trial court, they filed a motion for a new trial. And the judge said, you know what? Maybe I'm running for governor. Maybe I'm not. But I'm I'm able to dispassionately view the record and apply the law. Exactly. So then the defense attorneys go to the court of appeal. And this was the first time this happened in the Delaware Court of Appeal, where the defense attorney said, hey, let's put the appeal on hold. Let's go back to the trial court level and have an evidentiary hearing on whether or not Judge Lee was biased because he's been hit up to run for governor. Well, and what had happened, too, that led to this is that Judge Lee had gone to a Rotary Club meeting where he was a featured speaker, and he said that during this trial, and of course, this trial made him incredibly popular. I mean, we've talked about it before where district attorneys and prosecutors have become judges off of this. Right. But they wanted to hear about the Capano case. So he was talking about his conversation with the defense attorneys. This conversation, according to him at this Rotary Club meeting, had happened prior to the end of the trial. But in the middle of the trial, 
And he said that the defense attorneys had come to him and said they were concerned because they thought that their client was going to perjure himself on the stand. He was going to use his daughters as an alibi. So this came out in a newspaper article, correct? Correct. And this was, I don't know, maybe a year after the trial had ended. He was running for governor in 2000, election in November of 2000. I'm not sure when their primary was. So what happens is the defense attorney started reading all these newspaper articles. They wanted the Court of Appeal to kick it back down to the trial court and have an evidentiary hearing and interview journalists to say, did he really say these things to see if he was biased? So the Court of Appeal said, whoa, 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 we're not going to allow you to go on this fishing expedition, this evidentiary hearing. The Court of Appeal was concerned about sort of the sanctity of the process, and they don't want people, they didn't want to set a precedent where people got to have second bites of the apple because they impugned the judge. Right. And not only that, but he was on the campaign trail, so this had an impact on his ability to run for office and how people might view him. But here's the thing. So ultimately what the Court of Appeal said is, hey, look, we're not going to give you another evidentiary hearing to find out if the judge is biased. We want you to include this in your briefing So they told the defense attorney, you file a brief on the issue. No more than 25 pages. Exactly. Prosecutors, you file a brief on the issue. And then defense attorney, you get the last bite. And ultimately, the Court of Appeals said, there's no there there. Right. And so that article that you talked about never came up. None of these potential pieces of evidence ever came up in the Court of Appeal opinion. What the court said is like, hey, look. There's, it's a two-pronged test as to whether or not a judge is showing bias. Number one, does he have a subjective belief in his ability to be unbiased? And number two, there's an objective component. Can the reasonable person look at this and objectively point out things that showed that he was politically motivated or inclined against the defendant for some reason. Well, and I think that's what the defense was supposed to be putting together in those 25 pages. And they didn't. Because there was nothing they could point There's to. There's nothing. The Court of Appeal said the judge wasn't biased, and they did a judicial inquiry into him, um, like the counsel that oversees the judges, and they're like, nope, he was fine. But one of the things that I felt was interesting was like, it came out in trial that Anne Marie's diary was admitted as evidence. The defense raised the issue on appeal and the judges were like, are you kidding me? You agreed to have it come in. They stipulated to it, meaning they agreed to it. They said, sure, it can come in. And then they said on appeal, it's not fair. It's hearsay. The judge shouldn't have allowed it in. Wow. At trial, Anne-Marie's sister sat and read from her diary as though she was Anne-Marie. Oh. Yeah. And it talked about how... Anne-Marie wanted to break up with him because he was controlling and manipulative and all these things. So that all that all came out in the Court of Appeals like, you know what? It was fine. It was true. You agreed to it. Right. In January of 2006, the Delaware Supreme Court affirmed Capano's conviction, but remanded the case for sentencing because the death penalty was imposed by a non-unanimous jury verdict. In this case, the verdict was 10 to 2. Capano was resentenced to life in prison and was sent to the Vaughn Correctional Center to serve his life sentence. So, Kathy, I read that in 2006, when the death sentence was overturned, people were shocked at how Capano looked when he was in the courtroom. Right. He had gained a substantial amount of weight. Right. His skin was sallow. He just looked awful. Yes. 
on September 19th, 2011. So five years after the imposition of life sentence, correct? Correct. Okay. Capano died of a heart attack. Judge Lee, who had presided over his trial, right. said that it appeared to him that he had literally eaten himself to death. What Judge Lee had said, though, was that he felt what had happened is that once he exhausted all of his appeals, which he pretty much did at that point, right. he came from a family with heart problems. His father had died of a heart attack. Actually, a couple of years after this, his younger brother had died of a heart attack. And so he thinks he was just trying to kind of help it along. Yep. Give himself a heart attack. Right. He was 61 years old. The Fahey family hasn't commented since the trial began. The family took great efforts to speak to the press whenever they could as they were searching for Anne-Marie. Once the trial had started and then as the trial ended, they had said they had actually agreed both as an immediate family and then as an extended family that they would never talk to the press again about what happened. I totally respect that. Absolutely. They like, were devastated yep. by the loss you, you of their little keep, sister. Yes. You want to keep the action going. You want to keep her in people's minds. You don't want time to pass and everyone to forget her. But once that justice is about to unfold, there's no reason to talk about it anymore. Right. Because not only that, but if you think about how the press has changed even since this happened. Oh, for sure. Imagine how it would be manipulated and just become an ugly thing. And they want to remember the Anne-Marie they knew and loved. Right. Thanks for listening. And really thank you for listening. Like extra ex exclamation points would have you. Yes. We just passed 10,000 downloads on our little podcast in fewer than six months. So thank you. Thank you for listening for real. And thank you for telling your friends about us. We really appreciate it. We're excited. We love doing what we do. Yeah, it's fun. We love having people tell us what cases we should look at yep. or any of that. So please don't hesitate to do that. But thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Yep. <laughs> She's a woman of few words <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but if you have not subscribed or rated or followed us on at Killer Destinations podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Please do. Thank you. Thank you.